This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. This morning, I'd like to think out loud with you about the ideas of aspiration and vow in our practice. And I say think out loud because I'd like to leave some of the issues these things raise as, as unresolved. I don't want to uh, explain it all, but rather present it as an ongoing dilemma that we all have to work out for ourselves one way or another. We can chant a vow to save all beings. And at one level, this is a koan that cuts through dualistic notions of self and other, saved and diluted. At one level, when we cut through those false opposites, our vow is already fulfilled. And yet, to see the side at which it is already fulfilled cannot in some way free us from the obligation to continually save all beings day in and day out at another level the level at which people are actually suffering hungry, poor in pain when we come down to that level it goes from being a koan to being a can of worms we, we open up something and we don't understand where the bottom of it is, what the limits are, what we can expect of ourselves. When we muddle those two dimensions, we can get a life of aspiration that becomes endlessly self-sacrificing but which contains the, the seeds of masochism because it has no no bottom, no end and that's the dilemma that I've often called saving all beings minus one it's the particular disease of spiritual practice and the helping professions. 
We don't know where to put self-need or self-interest in this ledger of infinite need. You read a um, moral philosopher like uh, Manuel Levinas, he will state that the ethical demand of the face of the other is infinite and is not reciprocal. And you cannot presume to make an equal demand on the other that the other makes on you. When Joko writes about love, she says, true love is total and expects nothing in return. How does one live that way? What's a model of that? Is the love of a mother for an infant that kind of love? Sometimes it can look that way, and we speak of unconditional love. But the love of a mother for an infant is almost always a reciprocal, uh, circular uh, feedback loop of, uh, of love and response. Uh, the mother is constantly reaffirmed in her own identity as a mother, in her own sense of being a good mother, uh, effective by the way the baby thrives, looks up at her, grows, smiles, begins to talk, develop. When something happens that makes that impossible, uh, if you've ever had a colicky baby, or a baby that is uh, not thriving, or a child that is not doing well, of course part of you uh, feels terrible for the child, but it is also a terrible narcissistic injury. One feels almost inevitably like a bad mother, a failed parent, right? That there's something wrong with who you are and what you're doing. Very hard to be in a situation like that that is um, completely free from any desired outcome. Now, some circumstances like that, if you have, if you're caring for a child or a patient who is not going to get better, uh, who has something uh, developmentally or terminally wrong, uh, sometimes that experience will really serve to wear out and purify your motives. You really learn to love just as it is, without any comparison, any longing that it would be different. You're just totally absorbed in the person just as they are. Uh, That can be a long process and sometimes opens people up to a different level of love. But you certainly can't um, presume to start there. 
and you can't uh, assume that all kinds of uh, frustrations or failings of outcome are going to be uh, growth experiences, right, or spiritual exercises. Some things, some kinds of work, some kinds of dead ends can genuinely be soul-killing, numbing, depressing. Right? Uh, It's a a big problem in some communities where work practice just becomes a lousy job. (laughs) Right? And uh, you really have to be able to tell the difference. You know, if a young woman has uh, had to quit school, take a low-paying job to support her husband while he writes his dissertation, or is staying home taking care of the kids while he's in medical school, uh, he put that woman in a, uh, you know, once a year she gets finally to go away uh, to do a retreat. And work practice comes around and they send her off to uh, scrub the, uh, the Roshi's bathroom. <laughs> I'm not sure that for that kind of person that exactly counts as a spiritual practice. Right? Uh, she had enough of that. We have to be careful about what we presume is going to uh, be selfless, right, or make us selfless, right? Um, whenever we talk about saving or helping, we have to be clear about our motives, and I've written a lot about our secret practices. There's a lot of ways in which we have hidden motives for self-aggrandizement, self-redemption, ways of secretly pumping up our ego in the guise of spiritual or selfless practice. We have to always see how those things are implicated. Yet we cannot say we will not act unless our motives are pure, because then we'll never do anything. Everybody's motives are always mixed. Somehow we have to figure out how to do the best approximation of what needs to be done, even... Uh, when we realize our reasons for doing it are complicated. There are ways in which we need this practice in much of our life to to get off the grid of means to an end, off the grid of any kind of gaining idea. In my practice as a psychoanalyst, I've often said to people the difference between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy is analysis doesn't help anyone. 
it is uh, a model of open-ended presence and inquiry that isn't goal-directed, isn't symptom-focused. <coughs> Occasionally I have had rather fruitless exchanges with insurance companies who <laughs> do not particularly care for that attitude. Uh, they want things to be focused and goal-directed and preferably short-term, open-ended and non-goal-directed. It doesn't sound like something they want to pay for. Right? Makes sense. And there's a perspective from which we can fetishize not helping, right? Having no gain. Um, but we cannot diminish the times when it's absolutely necessary. Um, if a child is being abused in a terribly <coughs> uh, you know, bad family situation, you want to call a social worker who's going to do something about it, get it into foster care. You don't want some analyst to just sit around and have no goals and explore how it all feels. Right? You need some way, and there's got to be a way in which you value action. Now, sometimes we say we can resolve the tension between the absolute and the relative in this by finding the absolute and wholeheartedness when you help, just help, right? Totally throw yourself into the activity. That's right. But the, the question of how to really integrate or balance in our lives these, this dimension of what needs to be done, what social injustice needs to be uh, protested, uh, what living conditions need to be ameliorated, what kinds of relationships need to be fixed or ended. Right? Uh, real problems at the, at the level of... Uh, helping and change and gain. They can't be evaded by a retreat to a transcendent level in which uh, all is uh, just as it's supposed to be. Um, we We want to see both of those levels, but I think we also don't want to find any easy false integration of them. We have to be able to live with the tension uh, that those two aspects will always have in our lives. Um, That's why I say I'm just thinking loud about this. I don't want to have an answer to it. I think that um, it's a genuine conflict and it's genuinely irreducible. Uh, And we want to be able to uh, stay with it and not find a comfortable answer on one side of the the line or the other.